0: So, Acts chapter 28. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and, after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and they were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with supplies that we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up and on the following day, we reached Puteoli, I think. Um, they were, there we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius to, and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I've done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and to talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we've not received any letters from Judea concerning you and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from the morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. He said, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to these people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused they hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes otherwise they might see with their eyes hear with their ears understand with their hearts and turn and i would heal them therefore i want you to know that god's salvation has been sent to the gentiles and they will listen for two whole years paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him he proclaimed the kingdom of god and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Thanks for that Matt,
1: Um, please do keep that Bible passage open in front of you. Uh, My name is Josh, I am one of the leaders here at Christchurch, I'm going to speak to you about that passage. Have you ever noticed how it's always the same question that people always, always ask to someone who's really, really old? In the last census in the UK, there were more than 15,000 people in the UK who are over 100. Uh, The oldest of them is a lady called Ethel. She's 113 years old. Isn't that amazing? Amazing achievement to live to 113 years old. Sometimes that makes it onto the news when perhaps the oldest person in the country dies and there's a new oldest person um, or the oldest person in the country has a birthday. And if it's ever covered on the news, um, you always find that the reporters ask the same question. They go and ask them, and they say, what is the secret to living so long? Of course, it's a silly question, really. We imagine that there must be some secret, because it's an amazing thing to live to 113. There must be something amazing that they do. There must be some secret, some formula, some some trick that they know that we don't. The truth is it's a silly question because there's over 15,000 people over 100. If there was a secret, we'd know it. We'd ask them and they tell us. In fact, the answers they tend to get are things like, I just go for a walk every day or I have a chocolate bar every day or make sure you don't get in too many arguments. They they give all kinds of answers. Um, But we think there must be a secret because it's such an amazing thing to do. We can't get our head around the truth, which is to live that long, all you need to do is just live. All you need to do is just do the things that we all do to live. Eat and drink and go to sleep and wake up and breathe. I no, not know, it's not always that, that easy and um, there's lots of things that are out of our hands. But all these people who've done that, they've achieved something amazing, but they've also just achieved it just by doing what we do all the time. Just being, being alive, just just living. Because we think that there must be something special that they do to reach this amazing achievement. But the truth is, doing something amazing is achieved by actually the small, ordinary things in the day-to-day life. And the book of Acts knows all about that pattern. The big story in the book of Acts is that Jesus is doing something amazing in the whole world. Jesus is bringing people from all over the world into his family. It starts in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, with only a handful of people in a room. The first number we're given in the book of Acts is 120. And by the end, the, the message of Jesus is going to the entire world. And that's the amazing thing that we're going to learn, that Jesus' message it will, will be for everybody of every age. It's an amazing thing. And we get to the climax of of this story in acts chapter 28 the very end of acts and what is the secret to doing this amazing thing well we're going to learn that we are part of jesus amazing plan as we do the day-to-day ordinary things that christians have always faithfully done those things we've been calling the new normal now that Um, Jesus has come, he's died, he's risen again, he's gone to heaven and he has sent his spirit to work in the lives of believers, there's a new normal. And that new normal is described in Acts. And in today's final chapter, we're left with four things, four pictures really, of what the new normal is for the church in any generation, including us. The new normal, firstly, is uh, snake bites and sick beds. So the chapter opens with Paul unexpectedly arriving on the island of Malta after a shipwreck. We covered that last week, but if you weren't here, that's what happened. Uh, He was on a ship. He wasn't going to Malta. He was shipwrecked. And here he is on the beach. But he's a prisoner. He's under guard, but he is on his way to Rome. That's where he wants to get to. But the ship's been battered on the way in an autumn storm. And here is Paul plus all the other people, prisoners and sailors on the beach of this random island in the middle of nowhere. But it turns out that this random island isn't a desert island. There are local people. It's called Malta. There are people there who begin to look after all the castaways. (coughs) And as they build a fire and huddle together against the rain, a snake comes out and bites Paul. Now, at first, the people think he must be a murderer because they do what we learned last week not to do, And they look at the circumstances and think that must be God's judgment. So they they think that Paul's shipwreck is some sort of karma, some sort of justice that the gods are bringing down on Paul, but he's escaped. He's escaped karma. He survived the shipwreck. So they think, well, this must be justice catching up with him. He's been bitten. But then because he didn't die from it, they interpret that as meaning that he's some sort of God who can control the venom in snakes. Now, Paul knows... The shipwreck and the snake bite—they're not God's judgment on what He's doing. They're not a signal that He's done something wrong. But the worldview of the people on Malta—and actually, the worldview I think of a lot of people around us, a lot of people we meet—the worldview of loads of people today is that our circumstances are God's judgment on us. We are going through this because we've done something wrong. That's what they think. That's what people think today. So instead of Paul turning up on the island of Malta and saying, "How hey, great!" I've got a new group of people I can share Jesus with. His job becomes a lot harder because people have just made up their mind about him using this thought process, this worldview, this logic that really doesn't actually make sense. But even while Paul is here with the snake bite, and people then have formed strange and probably unfair opinions about him, and distri- despite the trauma of a shipwreck and a snake bite, Paul, while he's on Malta, does what ordinary, faithful Christians are always called to do. He just loves those around him, and he spreads God's blessing wherever he is. We read about him going to visit his host's dad on his sickbed. Now, remember, Paul's a prisoner. He's under Roman guard. There is no reason for him to be like, warm towards the Romans. There's no reason for him to visit the local politician's dad, especially when his dad has got this probably contagious condition. But again, this is a picture for us. The sickbed is a picture of the new normal for Christians in any age. Wherever you are, even if people have unfair opinions of you, Christians love people wherever we are. Paul goes to visit Publius' dad. He prays for him. And as he extends this generous Christian love, he gets to see jesus doing his amazing thing because the man is healed so that snake bed and the sick uh, so snake bite and the sick bed that's a normal picture of christians wherever they are you and i being misunderstood judged and yet loving others enough to risk ourselves for the sake of others and amongst the snake bites and sick beds paul finds that he is part of jesus amazing plan cuz this guy's healed and actually many more on the island get healed truth is, the snake bites and the shipwrecks hurt, but we've learned and we learned today as well that the hurting times in life are not God telling you to stop doing what you're doing. Now, it might not be exactly clear to Paul and it might not be clear to you how God is using the shipwrecks or the snake bites that come along. And it might actually seem like a very negative thing as people form judgments about you But the call to the Christian is to say, well, I know that I'm called to be a blessing to others wherever we go, to go to the sick bed, to be distinctive in loving others, and into the struggles of this confused world. Jesus is using Christians to bring a breeze of blessing wherever they go. Now that same truth um, is true in the second picture, but it comes out in a slightly different way. After verse 10, then Paul starts The rest of the journey, verses 11 to 13, show how that after Paul has spent the winter in Malta, avoiding the bad sailing conditions, he now leaves for Rome. And it gives us a strange detail that he's on a ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. And that's a second picture of the new normal. This is Castor and Pollux, by the way. This isn't them on a ship, but you imagine them on the prow of a ship. And this is the second picture of the new normal, how Paul is surrounded by people with pagan beliefs, people who believe in something totally different and are willing to put that as the figurehead on the front of their ship. And here's Paul surrounded by that, heading straight into the heartland of a confused world. And that is the picture for the church ever since. The new normal is Castor and Pollux. Now, I do get that that probably sounds like a strange sermon heading, jotting that down so you can remember, but how are you going to remember what that means? But you know what? I think a lot of you actually really do know what I mean here. Just as Paul, probably only had two or three friends with him, he's outnumbered, he's vulnerable, is on a massive ship with a monument to pagan gods at the front, sailing straight towards Rome, the giant and most significant and godless metropolis... Just as he's doing that, I'm sure you know what it's like to be surrounded, to be outnumbered, and to be vulnerable. Maybe some of you know that from the country that you've come here from. Or many of you will know that as you walk into your place of work. You're walking in and there's messages on the walls that praise the twin gods of success and reputation. You're surrounded by people who are proud to worship the gods of money or ambition now the picture we're given of the new normal as paul finishes his last journey in the book is one of christians in a world that operates proudly under the banner of a different god the new normal is that christians and that you and i and the church in every age will feel outnumbered and intimidated and vulnerable but let's let me say that that's here in the bible to show that when that happens to you it's not a sign you're doing something wrong It's not a sign you shouldn't be there it's not something you should be discouraged by we are to to expect that the way those around us understand the world is fundamentally fundamentally different to our way of understanding the world you can read this and be assured that as paul heads into rome on a ship with castor and pollux at the front you can be assured that god does indeed put apostles on boats with the adorned with pagan gods and so god does indeed put christian teachers in secular classrooms god does put christian sports in changing rooms where the conversation is just crass and shameful god does put christian families to live on a street where the next door neighbor is a family who's known for distributing drugs around the area god does put christian lawyers and architects and gps into a partnership a practice where what is right always takes a back seat to what makes most money. Christians are always going to be where other people dedicate their lives to other gods. But then what happens next? We see this lovely heartwarming scene. Paul's not isolated in this. In the shadow of Castor and Pollux, look at verses 14 to 15. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they travelled as far as the former Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. So the call to the church in the shadow of Castor and Pollux is to be distinctly encouraging to one another, knowing that we're all in environments dominated by Castor and Pollux, or Rome, or greed, or reputation, or money. And it's such a lovely picture that Paul's first encounter with Rome isn't with a prison, or the soldiers. It's not with the emperor, and the Colosseum, and his lions. It's a warm welcome from other Christians. And the amazing thing that Jesus is doing in the world is he's building a family of brothers and sisters that's a language in the passage brothers and sisters who to one another are springs of hospitality and encouragement and love for one another we always want to encourage that here as a church among among us i'm sure if you've been here any length of time you've heard us talk about how we want to be intentional in showing hospitality to newcomers people we know less well but you know what the summer is a great time to while it's quieter, to use this quieter time to enjoy and encourage one another. I don't mean the type of hospitality that's about cooking a fancy meal and getting out your finest silverware. What I mean is being the type of people Luke describes here as at the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. We want to be the people who there's just the sight of when we meet together. It encourages us in a world of Castor and pollux. The, the workplace or the street or the family you've come from this week. We want this place to be a place where the sight of your brothers and sisters encourages you. Listening to each other. Mattering to each other. Sharing what we've got with each other. Being gracious. Giving without asking anything in return. That's actually just quite ordinary behavior. It's not flashy. It's not beyond what most people are already doing. Just carry on doing it. It's normal Christian behaviour, but that is a small thing we do that joins in with that amazing thing that Jesus is doing. So too is the third picture, um, open eyes and hearing ears. One of the unintended consequences of the pandemic was that every one of us, I'm sure, um, became experts on Zoom, right? And I know it's probably like a difficult memory to remember back how that's the only way that we uh, ever... Talk to each other back then, but um, do you remember how every single conversation used to start on Zoom, the three words we always would say to one another, you're on mute. (laughs) That's how we all used to talk to each other back then. We'd start a conversation and someone would just say, you're on mute. I bet we've all got our own stories, haven't we? Being in a meeting, someone takes off, they start talking, they start explaining, and you need to tell them they're on mute. You just have to be quick to press your unmute button to tell them, but maybe they're just in full flow and they can't hear you, and they talk, and someone just has to eventually say, I'm really sorry, everything you said, no one understood, no one heard. I think particularly maybe as Christians, we got it quite bad, because we had prayer meetings, you got your eyes closed, and you wouldn't know that they're talking, Um, so you just had to keep peeping with one eye open, Um, and we've all had those uncomfortable times where you've said, thanks so much for that, we didn't hear you. You're on mute. It's even more embarrassing if you're the one on mute. You're talking, you're trying to explain, and someone has to say to you, no one heard that. You realize that everything you've said has not been heard. But Paul's got something like this experience in the first bit of gospel preaching he does in Rome. Verse 17, he gathers together the local Jewish leaders. It starts positively because he discovers that these local Roman Jewish leaders... They don't have anything against him like the jewish leaders in jerusalem there's all kinds of lies and rumors and things been said about him in jerusalem here they say to him oh we haven't any letters we don't know anything about that so paul's thinking great i've got a blank canvas and they are jews who know about the messiah so he can introduce them to jesus quite easily this is a great opportunity so he arranges what we would call a day conference verse 23. he's got this amazing opportunity to explain to them about Jesus. He says it's from morning till evening. And how it ends comes across really odd if this is the climax to the whole book of Acts. It seems that Paul is on mute. A lot of them just don't believe. Paul sees how they've been listening to him but have completely ignored what he's saying. And he quotes to them a quote from Isaiah, Where God says that his people will treat God's messenger, whoever tells them the truth, as if they're on mute. He says, this is what it said, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. And it feels like an anticlimax. I'm wondering what the the author of the book, a guy called Luke, wrote Acts. And why has he put this anticlimax right at the end of the book? to show that not only do people not believe the message, but the Bible's already said that a lot of them won't. But actually, the new thing here that Luke has dropped in is something important in verse 28. That although the Jewish people, with their Old Testament scriptures, their background, their foundation already set, although they are blinded to the truth that Jesus is their promised hope, Luke says in verse 28 that we are to expect open eyes and hearing ears, when the hope of Jesus is shared among the rest of the world. Now it's important to say we can't conclude here that no Jewish people will ever believe in Jesus from now on, that's just not true. There are other bits of the Bible that tell us the message of Jesus is, is for everyone. But the story of Acts is so much in a Jewish setting. It starts with Jewish believers telling people about the Jewish Messiah. You would have thought that the Jewish people would be the first to hear it. And the people who sail their ships under the figurehead of Castor and Pollux would not be interested. And so here's the encouragement. The new normal that all Christians should expect is that this message of the Jewish hope, the Messiah, God's King, we should expect that that is a message that's met with open eyes and hearing ears anywhere Perhaps I would preach this differently if I were in Jerusalem today, but given that I'm in Liverpool and most people you meet will be Gentiles, then we can take that as an encouragement. Wherever you speak to people about Jesus, you can expect that there will be open eyes and hearing ears. The church in every age, in every place, can speak about their hope in Jesus and expect that Jesus is going to keep on growing his church, growing his worldwide family. That's, that's just really amazing. The church in any age can share their hope about Jesus and expect that Jesus is at work building this worldwide family. What if we believed that was true? Okay, it might not mean that we expect hundreds hundreds of people will become Christians every time we chat about Jesus, but if but we do know that Jesus is drawing people all over the world to Himself, and that includes people in Liverpool. Some of those people that have open eyes and and wide open ears are here in this city. And he's put us as a church here to introduce them to Jesus. How is that going to happen? Well, we've got a fourth picture. The new normal is rented houses. The final two verses of of the whole book. Verses 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The climax of the whole book of Acts, the message of God's salvation reaching the ends of the earth, this amazing plan happens in small, ordinary conversations in the modest front room of a rented house i think re- we really need to know that that the big picture happens on the small scale the big picture is verse 28 god's salvation is going to the whole world but how that happens is just in really really ordinary ways and that means you and i can be part of it have you ever seen um, a picture on a tv of something like this at a football match um, they do it better in other countries this is one um in our country where you can see that the whole um crowd make this this message sometimes in other countries they have elaborate pictures maybe the whole stadium is doing this um it's this picture that you can see on the tv cameras or from far away they call it it's got a name it's called a tifo um, and the, the plural is tifosi it's like language in the football fan world you're doing a tifo this week um, it looks amazing on the TV camera, but I've wondered what it's like to be part of it. Do you, do you reckon the way to be part of it must just be that you get a piece of coloured card on your seat and you hold it up? That's probably it, isn't it? You don't really do much else other than hold up your piece of card. Some of these tif- TIFOs, or TIFOSI, they, they look amazing If you see, if you go and look up some other pictures of them. Um, I would have shown you more, some of the amazing ones, but because they're football fans, they're not always like that wholesome. So I wasn't going <laughs> to show. You, but they do look amazing pieces of art. But you know what? Even if it is the most elaborate picture, what you do, the individual football fan, you still just hold up a piece of card. It could be the most amazing one. It could be the entire stadium. But what you do is you just hold up your piece of card. That's the message at the end of Acts. Jesus has this amazing plan. Verse 28, um, the gospel of God's salvation is going to the world and they will listen. And it's not just that Jesus is like making a worldwide movement. There's a more amazing truth behind that is that Jesus is not drawing people to a community, but drawing people to God. Jesus has become a human being, become one of us. He has lived a human life. He died a death on the cross. He rose from the dead He went into heaven to unite us to the Father. And he is bringing people from every ethnicity and language into that family. That's globally the message. And that is eternally what he's doing. But if you look at what your part in it is, individually, what do you do? Well, it just looks like a rented house. I know many of us can probably relate to Paul's rented house. We're the type of church where maybe most of us um, are living in rented accommodation. And you know how that feels to live in a rented house. Maybe it's not exactly the most welcoming of environments. Maybe it's it's not up to you to paint the walls and get nice furnishings and fittings. Maybe you're in a rented house because you can't afford to have somewhere where you'd paint the walls and get nice furnishings and fittings. Where you are is just kind of temporary, it doesn't look that great. It's fully furnished, but it's not exactly the furniture you'd have chosen. So you don't think that that is a great place to do the ministry to the world that Jesus has called us to. But you know what? Acts 28, that's the perfect backdrop to a conversation with somebody where you just share with them how much your faith in Jesus is important to you. In fact, Paul's whole situation is less than ideal Um, Bear in mind, he's still a prisoner at this point. He's under house arrest. Verse 16, there's always a guy with him. He's got a soldier always there. So it's not exactly a great opportunity for a day conference. Um, He's in a new city. So he doesn't really know the ins and outs. Probably quite a new culture. And he's also awaiting trial where the emperor is going to decide whether he lives or dies. So for two years, his life has got possibly a death sentence hanging over him. He's not exactly in what we'd call a season of life where he's primed to be the most effective he can be for jesus but you know what you don't need to be in your own home you don't need to be free from life stresses to do something really small and ordinary and that is just get someone in your front room and show them love to visit a sick bed to pray for someone to share with someone why jesus is important to you that's the new Normal for all of us, rented houses, ordinary people in life's normal struggles, living ordinary Christian lives of love, kindness, blessing those around us, speaking Jesus to people. I love those four pictures um, that we have of the new normal, but I can't actually, I can't help but feel that I default to the opposite of each one. (laughs) Maybe you recognize this. So, where it says a snake bite, something that happens to me that make other people jump to conclusions about me, well, I let that put put me off, showing generous love to others. I let that be my excuse for not going to the sickbed. The second one, I live in the world of castor and pollux, and so at the forefront of my mind is just being consumed with how intimidated I am by the beliefs of other people, and that we don't agree on this, and that I might be called someone who hates them. And because I'm thinking like that, I fail to see the beautiful call of being someone who other Christians are just encouraged at the sight of. On the third one, um, if I ever think about talking to people who don't know Jesus about him, I somehow could never quite let it sink in that the truth is that there are open eyes and hearing ears out there. I just find it easy to dodge a conversation and imagine that this won't go anywhere. And besides, number four, I live in a rented house. Personally. It's not that mine is rented, but it's not the right season of life, certainly, to open up my home with my messy living room to show love and hospitality to people around me. It's not the right season of life to spend time with others. There's something hanging over me, perhaps. I can always do this gospel ministry when I'm less stressed, right? When my house is tidier, when my life is more set up to teach people about Jesus. Well, none of that is true. And I think that the reason that I default to thinking like this is probably for two reasons. Firstly, I don't get Jesus' big plan enough. I don't let myself believe that Jesus really is in charge of the world. And I don't let myself believe that he really is doing an amazing thing. That big picture of verse 28, I don't ponder God's plan enough. I don't consider what he's doing in the world and I just forget that that's what my life is all about. And secondly, I think I'm put off living like this because I think too much of it depends on me. If I've been shipwrecked, if people have unfair opinions about me, I imagine that I'm not going to be part of Jesus' big plan here. I think there's no way that I can overthrow the great gods of Castor and Pollux or whatever gods people around me worship. I imagine that it's my job to open blind eyes and deaf ears so that people automatically listen to me about Jesus. And as my circumstances limit me, I tell myself, I'm never going to win the world for Jesus. The truth is none of that is what I'm called to It's not dependent on me to achieve any of that. I'm not called to overthrow Castor and Pollux or melt stony hearts or impress people with my got-it-together life. None of that depends on me. I need to understand, and perhaps you do too, the new normal for the church is simply love others, whatever opinions they formed of you. Enter a world where people worship other gods. I'm sure you're doing that and encourage other Christians, and to speak about your hope in Jesus, because people all over the world will listen. And you do this even in the smallest of settings. Acts 28 suggests that most of us aren't called to preach on the big stages. Acts 28 shows us that most of us won't bring revivals, most of us won't have easy lives, free from the shipwrecks and snake bites. But it does say that we will do the ordinary things that Christians have always done. The call to us is to go on now loving, encouraging, sharing Jesus, and that's all we do. It's Jesus who does his thing and builds and unstoppably and awesomely builds his kingdom and his worldwide family. So there isn't a secret to living until you're 113, except doing the ordinary little things that people always do, and there isn't a secret to seeing the church grow and the world drawn to Jesus, it's just humble love and ordinary chats about Jesus in the little living room of a rented house.